Today's passage is Jonah 1, 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Wow, this is like a classic church scenario. Good morning. There. <laughs> yeah, if you've been in church, you've only done that like 600 times. Well, my name is Charles. I'm one of the pastoral residents here, along with Juan Chavez. I have the honor of preaching uh, this morning. Uh, Sean and a good contingent of our church, they're actually in Mexico right now with one mission, helping build a house, which is pretty cool. So uh, my wife and I have been here. You've probably heard this before. I'm telling you anyways. My wife and I have been here at Redemption uh, really since the start. We love this church. We're glad it's our church home. Uh, we have two foster daughters who we love dearly. And um, yeah, let's get to it. Let's pray. Father, you're good. <sighs> Let us just rest for a moment. God, we want to just expectantly ask that you um, teach us what you need to teach us in your spirit. God, as we look at Jonah, would you speak to all of us, God, to know you more? Would you please give me the words to speak? Would I just be an instrument uh, of yours to glorify you, God? I pray for those of us in the room who know you, and we'd walk in you, Jesus, walk in you well, that we wouldn't just walk away with facts, we'd walk away with uh, life-changing truth, and I pray that uh, for those in the room who wouldn't call themselves Christians as well. We love you so much, God. You are so good. Be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you have your Bible, please open to Jonah chapter 1. If you're on your phone, better not be on Instagram. Before we jump into Jonah, actually, let's, let's even back it up a little bit more. Here at Redemption, you've heard this a lot, we typically walk through books of the Bibles verse by verse. And we haven't done this really since like the fall of last year. We've obviously still been very rooted in Scripture with our sermon series, but today we're starting a new series on the book of Jonah. It's four chapters, so we're going to take four weeks, which is different from what we did at Ephesians, which has six chapters, and we took like 46 weeks. Um, so we'll be in Jonah 1 today. I'm really excited about that. Um, but before we do that, we need to recognize the gravity of today. And I'm not speaking in hyperbole. Uh, today's date is May 5th, which, as some of you know, is also referred to in a different language called Spanish as a Cinco de Mayo. Now, if you had 20 guesses to guess what my former job was, you probably wouldn't guess it because by looking at me, because I used to be a high school Spanish teacher. You already knew that, Ben. I used to be a high school Spanish teacher. Um, so I, like... You can be surprised. It's okay. Uh, so I, like, I believe in God's sovereignty, and I don't think it's a, a, a surprise or an, an accident that I'm in front of you with a microphone on a day like this. And so we just need to break up some misconceptions real quick. Because if I pulled this room and said, what is Cinco de Mayo celebrating, the results would be sad. Okay? We need to start with what it is and before we can know what it is. Cinco de Mayo is not Mexican Independence Day. Okay, real, some of you are like, why are we? Just hang with me. 
It's not Mexican Independence Day. That's in September. It'd be like somebody walking up to you on Memorial Day and be like, hey, happy birthday, America, right? No, that's the 4th of July. It's also not Day of the Dead, which hopefully is a big duh for us, but that's like around All Saints Day and Halloween at the end of October, beginning of November. What Cinco de Mayo is, and I'm going somewhere, so hang with me, uh, is it commemorates a battle, a Mexican victory in 1862 uh, in the town of Puebla. They were being occupied, Mexico was being occupied by France, and uh, like Napoleon's France, and the French army hadn't lost a battle in like 50 years. And this kind of ragtag group, uh, this undermanned, outgunned army defeated the French on May 5th, 1862, and it's been commemorated and celebrated ever since. Now, there's lots of history leading up to that. There's lots of history coming off of that. And there's a lot of questions like, well, then why is it such a huge deal in America? I'll be in the lobby if you'd like to find out more, or you can use the internet to find out those answers. So, let's dive into Jonah. Just as we just took that moment to talk about Cinco de Mayo, which again, you might have rolled your eyes, you might have thought it was funny, whatever, we need to address what it isn't before we can talk about what it is. And because so many of us walk into this room with ideas or thoughts or whatever about this book of Jonah or this man Jonah, we need to do the same thing. And we need to say, hold on, let's, let's talk about what's, uh, what Jonah isn't before we can really see what it is. Because if you grew up in church, you probably saw the VeggieTales movie. You definitely did the coloring pages in children's church. And if you didn't grow up in church, you probably still have some idea of like, I don't know, is that the guy that got swallowed by the whale? I don't know, right? Like in culturally, we kind of know about this Jonah guy. And most of us, if I said, uh, you know, if we said, what do you know about Jonah? I don't know. He's swallowed by a whale. I don't I, Why? What happened after? I'm not really sure. Well, lucky for you, we're going to find out. So what Jonah isn't is it's not a children's story, which it's kind of been reduced to that a lot in our culture. It's not a children's story. It's a very adult story. Uh, Another thing that Jonah isn't is it's not just that story about the guy who got swallowed by the whale. That's part of it, and we'll even talk about that here uh, as we walk into the text. That's part of the story, but it's not the main point, and it's, uh, it's big, but it's just part of it. And the third thing is this. It's not like a step-by-step guide on how to interact with God. We have a tendency when we hear uh, about biblical characters to immediately assume that's what my life needs to look like. Uh, I hear about the faith of Daniel or the perseverance of Paul or whatever that looks like. And we say, okay, so Daniel did these 26 things. I need to do those 26 things. But that's not what's happening. Now, most of the time, we don't look at Jonah and do that because of who he is and his story. But I want to just clarify, we, we don't want to read and hear Jonah's story and say, that is the Christian life. We can take good things from uh, characters in the Bible. Obviously, we should admire and desire faith and perseverance in those things. But it's not like, that's it. I'm called to go to the heart of Afghanistan and preach about Jesus. That might be what God is doing in your heart, but that's not the default result of this book. Okay, so it's not a children's story. It's not just a story about the guy who gets swallowed by the whale. Or is it a large fish? We'll find out later. We won't. We'll just talk about it. Uh, And it's not a step-by-step guide for the Christian life. Let's dive in. Verse 1 of chapter 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish. 
away from the presence of the Lord. Tarshish. It's just a hard word to say. These first three verses set the stage for the entire book of Jonah. So we're going to park here for a minute and just see who are our characters, what are these places, and go from there. The first nine words in this translation say, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. So we see who's the Lord and who's Jonah and what does that mean? So the Lord, if you look at your Bible, it should be all capitals. Which means, we've talked about this before, which means that it's God's personal name, Yahweh. Uh, it's the name when Moses said, who do I tell him, send me, tell him I am, Yahweh, because God just is. Now this might not matter much to you in 2019 in America, but in the context of this book, it matters significantly. Because everyone had different gods they prayed to for different things. God of the harvest, God of fertility, God of rain, whatever it is. They all had names. Typically would have like physical idols and they would pray to them. So it's significant that this is God, God, like Yahweh, the the God we worship, the Hebrew God. And this God is talking directly to Jonah, which means that Jonah is a prophet, which means that God speaks to Jonah and then Jonah says and does what God tells him to say and do. We see this throughout the prophet books in the Bible, whether it's Isaiah or Jeremiah or the minor prophets, that the word of the Lord comes to the prophet and the prophet uh, follows and, and kind of is the mouthpiece for God. So God himself comes to Jonah, who we don't know much about. He comes up once or twice in scripture uh, elsewhere, uh, but he's a prophet. And he says this in verse two, he says, arise, get up, go to Nineveh. Okay, so where, what am I doing? I'm going to Nineveh. The great city, what's Nineveh? It's not like great, but like a huge city. Uh, And what am I supposed to do there? Call out against it. Why? For their evil has come up against me. A friend of mine said that if the prayers of the saints go up like incense before God, then the evil that arose from Nineveh was a stench. So God recognizes their evil. He calls Jonah to go to Nineveh. Now, where and what is Nineveh? If you want to throw the map up there, Eric, that would be awesome. So, and we'll get to kind of Jonah's route in just a second. But Jonah is in Israel, and he's called by God to go. It's about 500 miles northeast to what's now currently northern Iraq, Nineveh. It, it, is, it will one day be the capital of Assyria, which is, many scholars agree, the first great world power. So they were the supreme power for for a long time. And the Assyrians gained power by just domination. Um, Military might was their bread and butter. And so they would win battles by obviously military tactics, but they often would gain the advantage and take territory just through a psychological warfare. So they would target a city that they wanted to conquer, and they would find the smaller city next to it, and they would do unspeakable evil things to the people there to make an example out of them so that the bigger city or the next door neighbor would see that. And I'm not even going to go into what it was because it's just terrible, like unimaginably horrible things. That other city would see it and just surrender. So the Assyrians are wicked, wicked people. And God is calling his prophet Jonah, which this is actually, Jonah is the only prophet that gets called to go to another nation like this. Uh, He's calling him to go into the heart of this empire to preach against them because of their evil. In verse 3, we see, right, Jonah is called, Arise, go to Nineveh, etc., etc. And so Jonah, the faithful prophet, responds like this. 
But Jonah rose, one for one, so far so good on obedience. And he rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, and he finds a ship going to Tarshish, and he pays the fare, goes down into it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now the map's pretty helpful. We don't know where Tarshish is. Scholars don't know. Uh, but it's widely considered that it's west. Uh, some, many agree that it's as far west as Spain, which in Israel's eyes is like the end of the world. The Mediterranean is not an ocean, it's a sea, but it's gigantic. And so God calls Jonah, his prophet, to go to Nineveh, and Jonah's immediate response is to literally go as far the opposite way as possible. Now, thank goodness we don't do this as believers, right? So God's calling him to go to Nineveh for this specific purpose, and God, or Jonah, who is his prophet, which it implied this probably isn't the first time he's heard a word from the Lord, he goes down to Joppa, which is like the coastal town, gets on a ship to Tarshish, and heads out, like, I'm out of here. And it mentions twice that he does it to get away, to flee from the presence of the Lord. We'll see how thick that irony here is in a bit. In verse 4, it says this, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the first three verses, we see this call from God directly to Jonah with direction and Jonah's rebellious response. As soon as we get to chapter, or verse 4, it kind of opens into a new scene, right? Jonah's on the ship, and they're in the midst of a massive storm. So massive that the uh, sailors uh, are dumping goods off of the boat to try to keep it lighter, to keep it up. It mentions at the end of verse 4 that the ship, which is created to withstand these seas, is threatening to break up. And maybe to draw, drive the point in even more, it says the sailors or the mariners are afraid. Now, I grew up in the desert. I love the desert. Open water is terrifying, especially when it's dark. You can throw an amen out there for that if you'd like. So I am not a sailor in any way, and most of you are not sailors unless you're in the Navy, right? Um, but I've watched some Deadliest Catch, which gives me a pretty good idea of how, like, what's going on in the head of a, a sailor. And it's this. They don't get intimidated by, like, rocky seas. Like, if, I, if I'm on a boat and it starts doing that thing, it's game over. It's game over. Where these guys, like their day job is to work in these insane conditions. And it's almost as if the worse the conditions, like the more eager they are to ride it out, right? So the fact that these sailors in this passage are terrified is significant. Like this is a huge storm. So they're dumping goods to make the ship lighter and they're responding spiritually as well. And when it says that each cried out to his God, right? Because there's like hundreds of gods. So they're calling out to their different gods, hoping that one will answer, maybe protect them, make the storm go away, whatever that looks like. Meanwhile, Jonah, the prophet of God, the God, is asleep. He's gone down into the inner part of the ship, and he is fast asleep. Which we'll find out in a second is kind of messed up, because he's the reason for the storm. Real quick side note, you see a few times it talks about Jonah goes down to Joppa, he goes down into the ship when he gets on it, and then in this, during the storm, he's gone down into the inner part of the ship. Uh, what we see there in uh, the author is 
pointing out is this. Throughout Scripture, anytime there's an up, it's almost always associated with God. You go up to worship God, you go up to Jerusalem, up to the temple, and almost every time that it's down, it's associated with death. So scholars would say, like, every step he takes down is a step further away from God and towards death, because he's trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. So Jonah's asleep, the sailors are doing everything they can to keep this boat afloat, the ship afloat, and in verse 6 it says this, So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? A.K.A. How could you possibly be asleep right now? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Like we've, we're all calling out to our gods all over the place. And you're just sleeping, so like mate, throw, throw the lob up and see if he catches it, right? Verse 7, they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell to Jonah. Like they drew straws to figure out the divine will. People who didn't follow God, Yahweh, still did this because they trusted that their gods would answer. And, and Jonah essentially draws the short straw. And they find out like, hey, this storm is happening because of him. Verse 8, then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, an Israelite. I fear the Lord, right? You see the capitals? I fear Yahweh, the Hebrew God. The God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Now there's a t- irony is super thick all throughout the book of Jonah. And I like, my least favorite subject in school was English. So don't think I'm like in love with the literariness. I don't even know if literariness is a word, right? Of this book. But Jonah, when they find out that he's the reason for this huge storm, this, this potential destruction, they say, who are you? And he says, um, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the Hebrew God, which, let's just pause it right there. Every action that we've seen up until this point proves the opposite, right? Because if he truly feared God, he would be on his way to Nineveh, which, by the way, you don't go by sea to get to Nineveh. And then he continues, and he says, um, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And part of me wonders if he's like in his like religiousness where all the answers are up here, but they're not connected to his heart. And he's just answering this like default answer. And then when he gets to the point where he says, the God of heaven who made the sea, he's like, oh shoot, I tried to escape like the God of heaven by going as far as I possibly could on the sea. Like it was already a bad idea. Now it's really setting in that this is a terrible idea. Another ironic piece is that as soon as these pagan sailors who don't know God hear and see like, hey, this is clearly your God's deal, they immediately fear him. Even though Jonah should be the one fearing him, they, their initial response is to fear him. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said, what have you done? They knew that God was behind this. In verse 11, it continues on to say, then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. The storm was getting worse and worse. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land. 
But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. So these sailors, again, pagan sailors who have no allegiance to Jonah or his life whatsoever, uh, they say, what do you need us to do to make this storm go away? And he's like, throw me overboard. Which is going to be certain death, right? He can't tread water until the next ship comes along, especially in the midst of this storm. And these, these pagan sailors who have no allegiance to him still do everything they can to try to not throw him overboard. They row as hard as they can uh, to get to shore. But God, who's over all of this, made sure that doesn't happen, right? The storm gets worse and worse. And these sailors who are just starting to see, they've heard about this Hebrew God, and they're seeing who he is with this storm. Before they throw Jonah overboard, they say this in verse 14. It says, Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, O Yahweh, the Hebrew God, not our gods, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So where Jonah doesn't recognize God's power, these guys immediately do. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord, Yahweh, exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So some further irony. Again, these sailors don't know the Hebrew God. They don't know God himself. They're worshiping all these other kinds of gods. As soon as they start to see his power, they start to see that he is God. Now, we don't know if they were like converted or if he just went to the top of the list of people to pray to on their list of 20 gods. Um, but as soon as they throw Jonah over and the sea calms, they respond by further fear and they offer sacrifice and make vows. Which is really amazing because again, Jonah, who should be the one praying to and offering sacrifice and making vows to God, is just ignoring him completely. And then chapter 1 ends on verse 17. It says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Which is probably why you're here this morning. Like, the question, you're like, this is all good. But, like, was it a whale or not? That's all I want to know. It's all, like, my buddy I was talking last night, he's like, so when you preach it, like, are you going to address, like, did it really happen? I'm like, yes, it really happened. Because I believe what the Bible says. And uh, he's like, are you going to talk about if it's a whale? I'm like, we don't know. Okay, so there's your answer. The Hebrew word doesn't give us enough to know what kind of fish this is. And let me just give you like a really good seminary answer. It's okay that you don't know. It's okay. It's okay. It's like seminary 101. You don't know everything and you're not going to find out everything. And that's okay. And the fact that if this is a whale, it could be, could be a giant fish, could be some fish-like creature. We don't know. That's not the important part. The important part is that God worked sovereignly to appoint this fish to swallow up Jonah. And we're kind of in the intro of the episode because chapter 2 will tell us more about that. But a little preview is that God actually used this fish to rescue Jonah, not to kill him. I know growing up, I always thought like, oh, he got swallowed by the fish because he was supposed to die. And then like something happened and he got spit up or whatever, but he's floating out in the ocean. It doesn't matter if it's calm seas or not. He's in the middle of the Mediterranean. He can't tread water forever. Like eventually he's going to drown. And God uses this massive fish to swallow him to save his life. It's weird. Okay. It's okay that it's weird. So that's what we're left with at the end of chapter one. To be continued, right? In scene. What the heck are we supposed to do with this? Most likely, you've never been in the belly of a fish for even one day or one night. 
You're also probably not like a prophet of the Lord like Jonah was. And most likely, like you might be in the Navy, right? But you're not a sailor in, in the way that these men were sailors. So how do I easily take like, okay, Charles, like how do I take easily what this thing is? How do I package it up and make it apply to my daily walk? Like what can I write in my devotional? What can I start practicing in my daily faith? And your answer is this. The truth that we see throughout this passage is that even in the midst of rebellion, God's sovereign purpose prevails. Even in the midst of Jonah's rebellion, God continues to pursue him to accomplish his purpose. And we see his sovereignty, we see his godness, we see his awesomeness in the fact that he's appointing a massive storm. That, just a quick side note too, like, he's calling Jonah to go to Nineveh to like make himself known to the nations, make God known to the nations. Jonah refuses, and guess what happens to the sailors who are from all these other nations? They see God. Like God in Jonah's disobedience is still making himself known to the nations. And I can't express how easily, like truly can't express how easily it would be for God to just wipe Jonah off the face of the earth as soon as he disobeyed and choose the next guy and say, hey, go to Nineveh, preach against them because they're evil. He could have done that so easily, and yet for whatever reason, he continues to pursue Jonah in his disobedience. Now, we said at the beginning of the sermon that we can't just take Jonah's life and say, that's how my life should look, which like this chapter should tell us that's not doable anyways, right? But even though that's true, we can still find a lot of easy comparisons to our lives, especially if you're a believer and you're like aware of your, your heart. As soon as God called Jonah to, to his, do his will, Jonah immediately disobeyed. And it wasn't like a small disobedience, because that's, that's the justification in our minds. Usually it's like, well, at least I didn't like get a plane ticket to France when I was called to Zambia. Actually, France and Zambia are probably too close for an example, right? But like, I'm not, I'm not disobeying God like huge like that. I'm just doing all these little things and these little compromises. Regardless, God is still calling Jonah to do his mission, and Jonah refuses. And we do the same thing all the time. If you would, flip over to Psalm chapter 139, 139. We see this truth about God's sovereignty from start to finish in the Bible. And if you've lived long enough, you experience, like all you have to do is look back like a year or look back, how do you meet your spouse? How did you end up at the school you're at? And you're like, my non-believing friend the other day said, man, I can't imagine what life would be like without my wife. And we really think about it, like all the things that had to happen for us to meet. Before I could even be like, huh, it's like there's a God who has a plan. He's like, I know what you're going to say. I know you have the answer. So we see this throughout the Bible. And in Psalm 139, which is written by David, not by Jonah, we see this. It says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So read these next few verses. Think through the lens of Jonah chapter 1. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? Right? Jonah 1, 3, twice it says he, he did what he did to flee 
from the presence of the Lord. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, if I go down and down and down and down, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, like if I try to go to like the furthest possible route by way of sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, like if I'm in the middle of a huge storm in the bowels of a boat or the belly of a whale or a large fish, even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. So we see the truth that David proclaims in this passage is the same truth that Jonah knew but chose not to believe. That I can flee from the presence of the Lord by, and, and I'm just going to like, my personal sin isn't going to affect anybody else. I'm just going to go. And yet, we see throughout Scripture that God is over all things. And he's not just like on his throne ruling with like a 10 million foot view, but he's also intimately involved in every single thing that happens. Like he holds everything together. It's mind-boggling. And so this truth that God is insanely, massively God, that he's sovereign over all things, should give us two responses, maybe simultaneously. It should give us rest, and it should terrify us. Those of you who are in Christ can, especially in the midst of suffering, when you're questioning all of this big time, you can rest in the fact that God is fully in control, even if we can't see past like the end of our nose in the midst of those situations. It should terrify you if you don't have the peace of Christ. If you are, and hear me on this, in love, if you are walking throughout life and either like don't really know God and don't care to know God, or if you know who God is and choose to be like, that's not real, it should terrify you that if God is real, you are walking in disobedience. And because of that, like, that's terrifying. That's really, really terrifying. Or I would even say, the Christian in the room, though you're covered in Christ's uh, grace, the Christian in the room who is blatantly in a season of disobedience. Not like, we, sin is always disobedience, but like, I am completely shutting myself off to God because I just, I want this, whatever that this is. Like, that, the, the realness of God should strike fear into your heart, like, not just a respect. The good news is this, just like we said that Jonah, God's prophet, runs as far the opposite way as possible from God's calling, and God still pursues him, and we'll see later, to ultimately show mercy on the Ninevites, these wicked people, God, in your running away, in your rebelling, is pursuing you so that he can lavish mercy on you. Like, you're the Ninevites because you're wicked without Christ, and you're also Jonah because you're running away. It's not like you're just like, well, I guess I just won't walk with Jesus. Like, you're running as hard as you can, and you're throwing yourself into the sea head first because you love your sin. And yet God is pursuing you massively in ways you may never see so that he can lavish mercy on you. If you're a Christian in the room, most of you, not everybody, but most of you have like that one moment or that one summer or whatever where you went, I ran as hard as I could towards sin, as hard as I could away from God, and it got me nothing, right? Further and further emptiness. 
And then, like, but God, Ephesians 2, then I ran as hard as I could to God. Right? And it's, I can see that in my life that I was doing everything I wanted to do and it left me emptier and emptier. And then God saved my soul and changed my course the opposite way to run after him. And it didn't mean I didn't sin anymore, but he was the one who was pursuing and saved me. And so for you in the room who don't know Jesus, there's no judgment from me, okay, at all. But hear this, like God is real and he's massively holy and he knows everything and that thought should terrify you. But the good news is this, Jesus, who's fully God and fully man, right? We just celebrated this a few weekends ago. He lived a perfect life. He was the only one who was obedient. And Christian, don't tune out right now because you heard this at VBS every summer. Okay, like this is the truth that, will, that all of your eternity is founded on this. God sent Jesus, fully God and fully man, to live a perfectly obedient life. And his reward was to be crucified for your sins and my sins. He did nothing wrong, and yet he got the wrath of God poured out on him because of our sins. And the trade-off, like Josh said earlier, is this. Those who believe in him, and you know you're drowning, and you call out for a savior to pull you out of the water, if you believe in Jesus that he has saved you, you get his life. You get his perfection and his obedience. So the only way to truly obey God is to walk in obedience in Christ, because Christ is the only one who's truly ever obeyed. So Christian, take heart. Take heart in that truth that God has pursued you to save you and continues to pursue you. Like his kindness leads us to repentance. Just think back, if you've been a Christian a while, like think back five years of your 20-year walk with God and think like all the graces that he's given you to get you to where you are now from where you were five years prior. Right? All these, like when I became a believer, I was like, don't do these five huge sins and I'm good because like those are really sinful. And now I'm like, how was I, like, was I even saved? Like, I was doing all kinds of other stupid stuff, but, like, God is faithful to continue to correct me and draw me to him. You in this room who don't know Jesus and wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, maybe I'm just like a stereotype on a stage, kind of like preaching at you. So be it. Know that God is pursuing you with everything he's got, which is more than you could ever imagine. And it's not because, like, you're worth it, Okay. Like, you're special and we love you, but it's, that's not why. It's because God loves you and he, you need him to cover you in his grace and give you freedom. So though we walk like Jonah and we constantly rebel, we can have a ton of hope knowing that God continually pursues us even in our rebellion and can walk in him because of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, like I think about my own life and I, I forget all the time that you're fully in control. I forget all the time that you see and hear everything and really you know the words I'll speak before I ever even speak them. I forget all the time that you love me more than I could ever imagine and so I run away from you to all these other things to give me value and worth. And I believe lies all the time to help me uh, feel good about myself or terrible about myself, how you could possibly never love me or how, whatever. And I know I'm not the only one in this room that experiences that. Lord, thank you that you 
though you could have easily, we could never even know who Jonah was. Thank you that you continue to pursue him, as we'll see in the next few weeks, to accomplish your purposes. Thank you that you're a savior and the redeemer. And that for us in this room who know you, Jesus, we can walk in you in freedom, knowing that we're not enslaved anymore to our sin. And for those in this room who don't know you, Jesus, they can know that you, God, you love them, and you've made a way for them to be free. Holy Spirit, would you, would you save them? Would you save the people in this room? I'm not talking like I'm like up above everybody, but just the people in this room who don't know you, Jesus. They, they know they don't know you. Would you save them, God? And they would finally not strive, and they'd finally stop running after things that ultimately enslave them. God, let us in the room who do know you, oh, let us persevere. God, let us rest in you, knowing that you are insanely, uh, you are God, and you're not like the puppet that we so often make you out to be. Thank you that you're good. We need you desperately. Please, please be glorified. In your name, amen.